Well, hey, Grace, it's Wednesday again, and I got to tell you, the Wednesday preaching is a bit odd, but so grateful that we have the capability, the technology, the people needed to do this. And for us on Sunday morning still, maybe it was Saturday night for you, uh, to still gather, to still learn from God's Word together, and uh, hopefully to still know more of God's love for us and in turn love and obey Him more as well. Um, it was really encouraging to just get some of your text messages over the last couple days. Uh, even on Sunday morning, we got some pictures sent to us that, hey, our family's dialing in. And uh, my response was, feel free to take as many bathroom breaks as needed and eat as many snacks as you'd like. Uh, because last week was a little long. And I learned that without you here in the room providing some body language feedback, I have a tendency to just do what I have a tendency to normally do. And that's to talk for a really long time. And so uh, the Lord does not seem to have gifted me brevity. And uh, that's just something that I'm going to keep working to try to dial in. And this morning will be another opportunity for that. So um, again, if we go that long, snacks, bathroom breaks, feel free. Don't think another thing about it. But we do want to close down and wrap up our Names of God series here this morning together. And uh, we're going to do so by just trying to recap and think through where we've been. Uh, a little bit of the reason why we've even stepped through this series, tried to get our minds wrapped around what God says about himself to us in his word. God reveals these names to us to disclose for us things about himself that he wants us to know. And one of the first things that we've been thinking about was that names reveal character. That somebody's character can be understood by the name that person is called by. Now that's not something that's very true in our culture today as it would have been thousands of years ago. But it is most certainly true in regards to the names that God reveals to us about himself. Something about him is revealed in the names that he gives to us. Secondly, names reveal action. We see the actions of God, and we got to be careful to not think that the actions of God in the Old Testament, as revealed in his names, means that he'll act in the same way come the New Testament. we got to be careful to not error or conclude that. Rather, what we see in the actions is that the God who did that in the Old Testament is the same God who does work in the New, and in our lives, and in today. And who will work tomorrow if he so chooses to tarry. Names reveal action. And we see the actions of God. And some of the names that we looked at together over the last several months weren't even directly names ascribed to God as they were names given to altars, constructed to offer sacrifice to God after God did something decisively on behalf of his people, provided for them something significant that they desperately needed. And you see the actions of God, which most certainly flow out of the character of who God is. Lastly, God's name is refuge and power. 
Solomon writes in Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. And just that imagery of a strong tower is significant. I think of some of the towers we saw when we were visiting Roy and Holly in Ireland and the, the construction of these massive stone buildings that have stood for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Some of the castles throughout Europe are other examples of these towers that resemble or maybe even epitomize strength and security and refuge. And I think Solomon's trying to get us to understand something about who God is. And he does so by giving us this image and the imagery of a tower. Now, we have to be careful to not somehow think that these names are somehow the magic stones that we've been desperately needing to somehow get what it is that we might find ourselves desperately wanting. And so as we've worked through this series, we've just tried to think along those lines as well, that these names of God are not the ways for us to coax the genie out of the bottle. That it wasn't that you needed last week to all of a sudden know Jehovah or Yahweh Rapha to find God capable of providing spiritual healing and guaranteeing that. Names reveal character. Names reveal action. God's names are refuge. They're power. They're not magic stones. These aren't incantations that all of a sudden we now have knowledge of. Rather, they're ways for, underst- for us to understand more of who our God is. More of his character, more of his love for us. How he's provided throughout redemptive history for his people. And so as we've traced through, we've tried to see 16 different names. Today we'll add 17 and 18 to the list. We've looked at Elohim, God. El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Elyon, God Most High. El Roy, the God who sees. El Olam, the everlasting God. We saw in Exodus 3, God revealed himself to Moses as the I am. And that's just best simply defined as I am. It it just means that he is. That he's completely different than anything else or anything other that we have ever known or ever conceived of or ever even been close to conceiving of because everything in our world is the result of a creator. But he himself is not because he is the creator and he just is. In our Bibles, in particular the Old Testament, when you see capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that's the name Adonai. When you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the name Yahweh. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Or as Chris Tomlin sang a few years ago, the God of angel armies. Yahweh or Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides Now the next two, we didn't even try a few weeks ago to pronounce, but what they mean is the Lord sanctifies. And the Lord is our righteousness. And last week together, we looked at and thought through the Lord our healer, Jehovah Rapha, Yahweh Rapha. And the Lord is our shepherd, 
Jehovah Ra. This morning, we'll turn our attention to Emmanuel, God with us, and Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. Both of those names closely related to one another. They are given to us at different points in time in redemptive history. Their fulfillment is going to occur in different points in time in redemptive history. But they're very closely related and they together express the heart of the Father for his people. That in Jesus, God draws near to us so that we may draw near to God. So before we go any further and begin to unpack these names in any more detail, let's pray and then we'll hop into the text and try to understand them from there. Would you join me? Well, God in heaven, we do pray and ask that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you'd give us minds to understand what it is that you say in your word and what it is that you've revealed in your word. God, we pray and ask that you would help us to understand more of who Jesus is and more of your love that is demonstrated in him and in turn, Lord, that we would become more like him, that we'd be conformed more to his image, that we would know you more, that we would love you more, that we would obey you more. God, we live in a world right now where hope is seemingly lost. But we know that you are the one who provides ultimate hope. You provide ultimate hope for eternity, but you also provide hope for these days. These days of uncertainty, these days of wondering, these days of not knowing what the next day will bring. God, there's a lot of unsettledness to these days. But you never change. And you're the God who is there. You're the God who sees. You're the God who provides. You're the God who heals. You're our shepherd. You're the God who's drawn near in Jesus so that we might draw near to you. So God, we ask that you'd help us to understand more of who you are. And we ask this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, grab them and turn to Isaiah chapter 7 because that's where we're going to find the first of three instances where Emmanuel is used. The first is in Isaiah 7 verse 14. The second is in Isaiah 8 verse 8. And then the third is in Matthew chapter 1 when the angel speaking to Joseph And if we want to try to just kind of understand the big picture of these two names together, one of the best ways I think for us to do that is in thinking through it in this statement that Jesus came near to us to bring us near to God. Jesus came near to us to bring us near to God. And as we think through what Emmanuel means and what Yahweh Shema means, we're going to see highlighted and unpacked and fulfilled and prophesied this truth that Jesus came near to us to bring us near to God. Well, there in Isaiah 14, 
Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now there's a lot happening geopolitically at this point in time in Israel's history. And quite frankly, it's actually Judah. It's not even Israel. And there's, there, there's, there's unrest and there's armies and there's invasions and there's conquerings and there's battles. And there's just all sorts of turbulence taking place. And unfortunately, we don't have the time this morning to unpack all of that because you'd need more snacks and more trips to the bathroom if we were going to do so. But what is happening is that Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he says, look, the Lord's told me this. Ask for a sign. Ask for confirmation for it. And Ahaz almost feigns humility and he's like, I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. But Isaiah sees right through right through the feigned humility. Ahaz wasn't a good king. And Isaiah, in response, just simply says, the Lord's going to give you a sign anyways, and here's what it's going to look like. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. And scholars like to debate whether or not this, this woman, this son, was... To be Isaiah's son, they like to debate, was it Ahaz's son? Was, he the, was it the successor to the king? Was it another son that we don't know? And there's absolutely a, a, an immediate fulfillment in the text and in history regarding this prophecy that Isaiah gave to Ahaz. But there's also a future aspect to this as well. There's a far aspect to this as well. While there was a near aspect in this prophecy, there was a far aspect. And we see that more fully than realized in the person and in the birth of Jesus. And so it's in Matthew chapter 1 that Matthew is recording what this conversation was between Joseph and the angel. And if you want, you can turn there to Matthew chapter 1. We'll look at verses 21 and following together. And we're told in verse 21 that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew records and gives us some of his thoughts and says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew quotes directly from Isaiah chapter 7. And while there was a near-term fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah in the life of Ahaz as a sign to the nation of Judah there was also a far element of prophecy and it was about Jesus and it was about Mary who would conceive of Jesus not through the normal ways and forms of conception that would have most naturally occurred through her and Joseph having been married together and enjoying the consummation of that. Rather, she, we are told, in verse 20, conceived from the Holy Spirit. And she had a baby. 
We say that he was born of a virgin because he was. And his name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And this is to fulfill what the prophet spoke in Isaiah 7.14. That behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now for us to try to get our minds wrapped around the significance of this and the, the, the earth-shattering aspect of this, we have to acknowledge that the incarnation, God taking on flesh, the creator looking like his creation, is virtually non-existent in any and all aspects of our world. It's almost as if we have zero framework to conceive or to consider actually what this reality would be. Just think about it this way. Car makers don't become cars. The engineers who figure out how to make all the cool stuff work, and the designers who figure out how to make the body look sleek, and the the salesmen who sell it, and the executives who find ways to pay for it, and the, the research and design of it, none of them become the car. They're the car makers. They're not the car. Painters don't become their paintings. Now they might paint a self-portrait, but that portrait is not them. It's just a picture of them, and a rendering of them. Painters don't become their paintings. Backyard snowman builders don't actually ever become frosty. Now we might pretend to be the snowman, but we don't actually ever become the snowman. And the idea and here the truth that Jesus came. He was conceived in Mary from the Holy Spirit and he was born and he's now going to save his people from his sins and he is God with us. This idea that the creator would take on the likeness of his creation is virtually non-existent within our framework of reality. And yet this is what we're told in the scriptures took place. The Apostle John gives us some further information regarding this. And in John chapter 1, in the beginning verses, we read that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So John's introduced to us this, this name, this proper name of, of word. And we are told that in the beginning, echoing Genesis 1, 1, was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And in verse 14, we're told who this word is. The word is the one who became flesh. And John writes in verse 14 of his gospel account, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's this verse, amongst others, that we get the word incarnation from. And the word incarnation is an English word that we get from a Latin word where you have in and carne, which is flesh. It, it, it speaks to and it's used to refer to Jesus taking on flesh. And this is what John tells us. In the beginning 
was the Word. And in verse 14, he continues, And the Word became flesh. The Word became something that it wasn't before. Other New Testament writers write about this. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, Concerning his Son, the Son of the Father, who descended from David, according to the flesh. Paul's giving his introductory comments to the people living in Rome. And he says that Jesus descended from David according to the flesh. John in his epistle that he writes in chapter 4 verse 2 gives us a bit of a test to try to discern whether or not we should trust something somebody's telling us. Whether or not they're from God or not. And part of the test that he gives us is to ask the question, do they acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh and is from God? Colossians 2.9, Paul writes, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The consistent witness of the New Testament is that Jesus became flesh. He was incarnated. He took on our likeness, the likeness that he created in his own image. Paul further helps us unpack what this means in Philippians 2 and does so telling us to first think like Jesus. He says there in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think like Jesus. He's writing to this church in Philippi. He's writing from prison. He's telling them, like, I want you to think like Jesus thinks. I want you to treat each other like Jesus treated you. I want you to be like him. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I want us to just hone in for a moment here on these verses, and I want us to think briefly what it is that Paul is saying, because it helps us further understand what it means for Emmanuel to be God with us, for the Word to become flesh. And Paul says that Jesus... Though he was in the form of God, did not count or consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That idea of made himself nothing or emptied himself, that word emptied himself can be defined as the divestiture of position or prestige. It doesn't mean that Jesus stopped being 100% God. It It meant that his deity was somehow not fully seen to those he was with. And Paul further defines what this emptying is by following up that statement and giving us two participles to define what he means. There we're told that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
being born in the likeness of men. That taking, that word taking, is best understood to mean adding. It's used in John 13, 12, after Jesus has washed the feet of his disciples to refer to him putting back on his clothes, adding back on to himself the garments that he took off. And what Paul is trying to get us to understand here is that this emptying of God was not a laying down or removal of his divinity, but rather the adding of something. And we're told in the text what the addition was. It was the addition of a form of a servant. There was an outward appearance added to the God, Jesus. And in the incarnation, we would understand the scriptures to teach that Jesus is 100% God and he became 100% man and he emptied himself by adding the likeness, the form of a servant. Think about it this way and we'll stay with the clothing metaphor because we have some, some, some good reasons from John 13 to understand this word taking to mean the putting on of something. I want you to imagine right where you're at a king in the most glory, glorified splendor you can picture. Royal robes, a crown, whatever it is that your mind conceives of as you think of a king in all of his glory. I want you to get that picture in your mind. And then I want you to think of that king taking the rags of a poor man in his kingdom. Perhaps a man without a home, perhaps a man whose clothing wasn't New, perhaps a man whose clothing was torn and tattered, whatever it might be, but taking the rags of a poor man and concealing the glory and splendor of his kingly robes with the robes of a pauper. That's what Paul tells us that Jesus did. He didn't cease to be God. Rather, he became 100% man. That he, he, didn't, he didn't take off his royal robes. Rather, he put on the robes of a pauper. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He emptied himself by adding and by being born in the likeness of of men, another direct reference to the incarnation and the birth of Jesus. Jesus is 100% God and he's 100% man, and when he came, he did not cease to be God. Rather, he took on the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. Dr. Matt Harmon, who teaches at Grace College in Trinity Examinary, says this, The one who from all eternity existed as the radiant, visible splendor of God concealed that glory by taking on a form of a servant. 
He added something that, that didn't allow us to see everything that there was to see. And now there's, there's moments where that is, is, is made visible to a limited degree. I think of the transfiguration when, when Peter, James, and John are up there on the mountain and they see Jesus transfigured. It's almost like he, he pulled the pauper's robes back for a moment and allowed the kingly robes to shine through. And they, for the first time, had a conception of who he was that they had never had before. Jesus concealed the glory that he had as God by taking on the form of a servant. And I just want you to think for a moment the humility. That's part of Paul's point in Philippians 2 in regards to the humility of Christ and how we're to treat one another. I want you to think through the, the, the truth that God came near by humbling himself. By taking on our flesh, by being found in the form of a servant, and by being born in the likeness of men, the men he created. Jesus came near to us to bring us near to God. And he humbled himself. And he laid aside the prestige that was worthy or that he was worthy of so that he might bring us to God. I want to return back to John chapter 1 verse 14 and look at another word briefly with you. John writes, and the word became flesh. He became incarnate and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means to live or to settle, to take up residence. It could mean to pitch a tent. The idea is, is that Jesus is here. This word is used five different times in the New Testament. It's used once right here, obviously, in John 1.14. It's used four other times by John and John alone in the book of Revelation. And it's very closely related to another word that is used to refer to the tabernacle or the tent, or a dwelling. That word is used throughout the New Testament at different points in time to refer to the tabernacle and the temple. In Hebrews 9, if you saw the email on Wednesday and you read through Hebrews 9 together as a family, that imagery of the, the holy place and the most holy place and the, word, and, and, the, and the words the writer uses to describe the, the first section, the second section, the tent that existed, these are words very related, very closely related to this word John uses to describe the actions of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, that he came and he dwelt. I think there's some significance there for us because of the temple tabernacle imagery. And remember that Jesus came near to us to bring us near to God. And if we just allow ourselves a moment to think about what nearness or access to God was like throughout redemptive history, we can see some of the significance of this word and of what Jesus did begin to emerge and perhaps understand it more fully. Throughout the scriptures, you have this concept of access described. Come the New Testament, it's specifically and explicitly written about.